Hello and welcome to another episode of the CG Garage. This is episode number 400. Yes, we are celebrating our 400th episode with great, great person, Scott Lebrecht, who is the director of a documentary that we wanted to talk about specifically for this 400th episode. The, dire- uh, the, the documentary is called Jurassic Punk, and it's a story of uh, our good friend, uh, Steve uh, Williams, better known as, or a lot of people know him as Spaz. Uh, and we did do an episode with Steve uh, uh, way back when, uh, episode episode 93 so go check that out if you want to check that out uh but he is an incredibly important person because of the revolution that he did uh in the visual effects industry he was uh the person that uh, sort of created one of the main people that created the the water weenie uh, in uh, in the abyss he also created a terminator 2 uh uh uh, uh the t-1000 uh, and obviously uh, the Jurassic Park dinosaurs and uh, was really kind of a rebellious person, uh, which is an important part of this, uh, but also sort of redefined the film industry completely for all of us, for everyone working, especially in the visual effects world. Uh, and I think it was really great that Scott decided he needed to tell this story about what was happening back in, in the early 90s, uh, late 80s, early 90s. Uh, around that time and centered it around uh, around Steve because that's really kind of a, a great thing to do. Um, and so because of the importance of that thing, I thought it was an appropriate uh, thing to have this, the 400th episode. Again, if you want to hear from more from Steve and Mark DePay is also on that episode, uh, episode 93, go back and listen to that. Uh, but uh, we seem to do that, Kristen, every every two years, we have another 100th episode. So yeah. that's pretty amazing. So that means it's been we've been doing this for eight years and it's been absolutely wonderful. So this is a great way to celebrate it, don't you think? I love it. Yes, 400. That's a lot. <laughs> yeah, for sure, for sure. Did you did you enjoy listening to this? Are you looking forward to seeing the documentary? Oh, I'm very I'm very excited. Actually, I was looking it up and stuff after this. And I love the um, cover for it too, the promotional poster. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, cool. yeah. Yeah. Really, really great. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, so it is going to get distribution. It's going to come out in theaters and sometimes in December. So be on the lookout for it. And congratulations to Scott. And uh, Steve is just a, a, a great person, so it was it was nice chatting with him. Unfortunately, he couldn't join us, like I said. All right, we have a couple quick announcements, so you can get to the podcast real quick. Uh, Kristen, uh, the first thing is chaos at chaos.com. You can check out all these things. Uh, V-Ray 6 for Revit Beta is out, and V-Ray 6 for App SDK is also out, and more will be dropping as we go. So just be on a lookout. Look at chaos.com for that. Uh, several events are happening. Kristen, what's happening? Yeah, so you can find these out at chaos.com slash events. The first one will be today, and you will be talking at the Real-Time Conference. And you can find more out about this at realtime.community slash conference. Um, so go exactly. So watch Chris. November se- <laughs> November seventh, uh, which is today. Uh, I'll be talking about it later uh, this uh, this evening. So go check it out at the Real Time Conference. I'll be talking about uh, virtual production and doing real time ray tracing and some of my experiments and foray into Unreal and Vantage link live linking. So should be a lot of fun. A lot of my passion for virtual cameras. Or else, yes. what else is going on? All right. So on November fifteenth, it will be our third edition for Chaos Day India, and this will be online. So you can be anywhere in the world. And then November 17th through 19th, it will be SketchUp at China 3D Design Summit. So Chaos and Inscape will be there. Go join them in person. And again, find more about all these events at chaos.com slash events. Great. Uh, And if people want to know more about the podcast, Kristen, where can they go? You can go to facebook.com slash podcast or chaos.com slash cggarage. And if you'd like to watch us, go to youtube.com slash chaosgrouptv. 
Great. And if you guys uh, have any thoughts or comments or ideas for other for another 100 episodes, uh, let us know. It's, uh, you can always email us, labs at chaos.com. Uh, but uh, please, please, I'm so happy to have uh, celebrate 400 episodes with Scott uh, Leverick, and it was great to have him on. So uh, with all that being said, please enjoy 400th episode. Welcome to another CG Garage, where the chaos group talks. You'll know it's over when the last bucket drops. We're going to fire off rays in high dynamic range. We know that ambient occlusion is passe. Global illumination won't lead you astray. And while image-based lighting is really swell, you need to make sure everything has for now. But I think this is an important story. Uh, that you've you've recorded several important stories about the state of the industry, uh, and this one is a really big one. Uh, I absolutely uh, loved it. Um, it's uh, it's a very challenging <laughs> film to watch, uh, but also really well told and an important story that needs to be told. And you've done a, several of these, uh, uh, you know, including you, you did uh, Life After Pi as well, right? <laughs> Mm-hmm. So uh, I want to sort of uh, put things in perspective for people and talk about, first of all, let's talk about your background and how did, how did you get involved in visual effects? So you've been a visual effects person, so you know this industry, where, where, but how did you get into it? What's your background? Well, I was, I mean, I was a huge, you know, effects nerd sort of living in Ohio in, you know, in high school and uh, reading all the, Fangoria and all the Cinefix magazines and all the things I could get my hands on about how how the effects were done. <clears throat> and it wasn't until I started interning at um, Kenner Toys that uh, I I was I went I was going I was in school for industrial design and one of the internships uh, was Kenner Toys because it was the headquarters was literally in Cincinnati, Ohio, where I grew up. Right. And so I got to intern there, and the minute I walked in, I saw like dinosaurs all over the place. Right. And this was 1992. And so they were hard at work creating the Jurassic, the first Jurassic Park toy line. And what I saw all over the office, the design floor was uh, Stan Winston's maquettes. And they were using them to uh, sculpt the toys around. And so um, I started to, I, I mean, I immediately, I always knew the connection that Kenner had with, the movies and that a lot of their toys were promotional toys for movies, but it wasn't until I started to really investigate that, um, you know, there's a way to take my industrial design education and turn it into a, a, a you know, a movie making career. And, uh, I discovered that Charlie Bailey, who's a model shop, uh, uh, you know, luminary from industrial light and magic actually, uh, graduated from the same school of design that I did. And so right. I immediately started researching internship opportunities at Lucasfilm and I, and I applied and, um, and I was able to get an internship. And so uh, for about three or four months, I was working for Industrial Light and Magic in the art department. And then that uh, turned into a job and I uh, started doing storyboarding for commercials and, and some of the movies. And then eventually that uh, evolved into an art director position. And I went on to stay at ILM for five years up to 2000. 
So I was there from 1994 to 2000. Right. And I was the visual effects art director on movies like uh, Flubber and Spawn and uh, Tim Burton's Sleepy Hollow. So, right. Yeah. Okay. All right. So that's, that's pretty great. So Spawn, I guess, is probably one of the first times you met Spaz, right? Well, he, well, what's funny is the first time I met Spaz was on a commercial that he was directing for Energizer batteries. And it was this really funny commercial where there's like a, a mechanical flea bouncing around inside the, the rabbit, the pink rabbit. Right. And so, um, I did storyboards for that. And when he saw my storyboard, he didn't know who I was and he saw my storyboards and he's like, who the fuck is this guy? His drawings are hilarious. And he, he, he wanted to meet me. And so like we met and sort of hit it off right away. Right. And ever since then, I have, I for, for many, many years, probably two decades, I was his like storyboard guy that he always went to, to do storyboards for his commercials or anything he was, he was making. So I went on to do storyboards for the wild, the Disney animated film he directed as well as spawn and, and, uh, and countless commercials. So. That was really where our relationship began. Interesting. Interesting. But, um, you know, obviously, so, you you know, you've been in the industry for a very long time and you've sort of seen and witnessed a lot of the things that's, that have happened in the industry um, and uh, the, the for, for, for better or worse. And, you know, obviously having uh, you felt a, a need to document that. What got you into filmmaking uh, and more specifically documentary filmmaking? That's not necessarily something that needs to be storyboarded. <laughs> right? Yeah, sure. Yeah, no, I, I, uh, I, you know, being at ILM, you, 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 uh, you're constantly meeting, like, at least at that time in the '90s, like the top directors, right? And uh, actually meeting all those, all these people who you can easily like put on a pedestal and think they're so above me. They're so much better and I'll never be able to be them or, or even understand how to do what they do. Uh, it was fascinating to like actually meet these people and see how they struggled just like anybody does with their craft and that they were looking to me to help them tell their stories and, and, and find solutions to their problems. And so it kind of like, um, my experience at ILM kind of, uh, leveled things out in my mind about how I could participate in filmmaking and even in an even bigger way. And so I, I, I wanted to go to film school. And so I left ILM in 2000 and went to American film Institute in Los Angeles and was there for two years and, uh, did the directing program there. And so I started making movies myself as well as, you know, continuing to uh, support myself doing storyboards for commercials. I did a lot of work for Imaginary Forces and all kinds of things. Oh, cool. Here. Yeah. And so, um, but during that, I was always writing movies. I made a feature film. Uh, but then it was when I was at Rhythm and Hughes that uh, I was uh, working there as an art director. And my my boss at the time, here's the creative director, Mike Meeker, uh, when the company had uh, started to go bankrupt and I was only there for like four months when the company started to go bankrupt. And I was, it was like, Oh my God, what is happening? And Mike Meeker was, came into my office and was like, you're a filmmaker, right? And I was <laughs> like, no. And he, because I was kind of like, I was kind of like, I don't want to make, you know, like, cause it's such a monumental task to make a film. 
And so like, I had just like sort of settled in this new job and now he's, he's saying we should make this film. We're here at ground zero. And so, uh, we grabbed the cameras that rhythm had, and, uh, we got a lot of help from a lot of people, Christine, Christina storm, Christine Lee storm, and, um, uh, several people in the, you know, in the industry and around at that time wanted to pitch in and help make that film. Um, and so, uh, we did a bunch of interviews and that was my first documentary, really. That was my first attempt at storytelling in that way. And well, so, let's, let's, let's talk about the importance of that because, you know, that was a pinnacle time for me as well. I mean, that was the moment I decided to change careers because, and it wasn't necessarily that my job was in danger, but it was the, the fact that the industry was changing in a way that I didn't think I could sustain the way I wanted mm-hmm. to be in it and that, mm-hmm. you know, didn't want to have to lead a nomadic life that was there. But yeah. uh, can you can you sort of you know so did so I mean I know a lot of people know what happened to Rhythm and Hughes but not everyone does so tell us a little bit what happened why it happened and what you documented during that time yeah why it happened that's a big question um, I think there's so many uh, complex layers to that um, but Rhythm and Hughes was one of the oldest visual effects companies ever. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Older yeah. than ILM, I believe. Yeah. And they were, they were really, <clears throat> I think they were the first to do like furry animals really well. And, right. and um, so they, you know, I, uh, I was, so, so when I was there um, and the shit hit the fan and the, and the company was going bankrupt, uh, a lot of, a lot of people around the office we're talking about obviously the problems with the schedule shifting on Life of Pi, but they were also talking about two other films, and it was the Percy Jackson film and um, I want to say Snow White. Oh, but The Huntsman. Were, the Huntsman. That's it. And I think I think there were there were I think that's it. But there were three films that everybody was like. All three of those films pushed their schedule at the same, in the same time. And so it was like, it wasn't just one group of visual effects artists at Rhythm and Hughes that had a film get pushed. It was probably the entire company at the right. same time. And <clears throat> unfortunately, when, when they say, hey, hey, stop working, we need to do some more work, then we're going to come back. It's like for three months, that's coming out of Rhythm and Hughes' savings cash reserves or whatever right so that was a lot of what was what what i was hearing from john hughes at the time is like how a lot of that happened um and i think that i think that ultimately like the the big the big thing i learned during that process of interviewing everyone and talking about what everybody's different thoughts are about why it's going it went that way um it also had to do with a lot with the subsidies in other countries and how rhythm was like one of the last California holdouts uh, studio where everyone worked in California. But I mean, of course, the irony is that, you know, while this is happening, they're winning an Oscar for the work that they do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so like that was that was the big thing that was like I sort of and also what was amazing about that time was that uh, because of what was happening, a lot of people felt in a way safe to talk about all the problems. So right. prior to that moment, I couldn't have made that documentary. 
Right. Also, there was a very narrow window of time where people felt safe to talk about all the problems. Right. And it started to close probably about three weeks after the Oscars and after all that, because people wanted to start to calm down and not talk about it so much because it would upset the powers that be. Right. And so... So that was probably what was the most amazing thing about making Life After Pie was that it was this brief window when people felt safe to air their grievances publicly. And right. then it went away very quickly. It's interesting. To, there's always this fear that you're going to get blacklisted, which does happen. In fact, we have, <laughs> if mass comes on, we'll know very quickly that that's exactly what happened. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. And, yeah, it's just, it's just, I think it's too, I think it was, it's just, there's so much, um, there's so much competition. And mm -hmm. so you just literally don't want to do anything to possibly not get hired on the next job or whatever. Right, right. Yeah. Um, and that is, you know, that, that, that fear of over, being overworked and, and, <clears throat> and the, the trauma that happens there um, still exists, obviously. Uh, there has been news recently about people saying they, the industry is just treating them poorly right now. There's a crisis. There's another video that came out recently called the crisis, the visual effects crisis. Yeah. And, well. and it's, and it's, uh, you know, it says a similar story. So this says this problem has not gone away and people are sharing those videos. <laughs> mm -hmm. They're not necessarily saying, you know, it's not quite the, the me too movement, shall we say of the visual effects, but it is people sharing that and letting people know. But I think the problem that I have is that there was a there was a huge lack of respect for visual effects and CGI. In fact, the way that the film industry fought it is they basically made CGI the villain of movie industry and saying, I don't, you know, it's not good because it's CGI. And that I thought was a horrible way to defend the behavior of the of of Hollywood, right? Yeah. To villainize yeah. the industry or the, the medium itself. Yeah, it's kind of it, it's it doesn't make a lot of sense. And coming from uh, being a kid in the '80s and watching all these great movies like Raiders of the Lost Ark and ET and Back to the Future and all this stuff, where the studios had like one shot in their gun, and it was one tentpole per summer, really. And they had to make sure that script was airtight and bulletproof and it was a good story. Right. And I think that I found it shocking after Jurassic how quickly um, those what were supposed to be the best films of the year were turning out to be just a pile of junk with some amazing computer graphics in it. Right. And I think and I think that what what I think everybody kind of knows this, but it's like, it's the idea that um, the trailer is the key. And right. so that's and what so, sells the tickets. <laughs> exactly. So, so to me, it's like, I kept, when I was at ILM, I kept envisioning like the freak show tent at a circus mm -hmm. and how they have these like paintings of, you know, the bearded lady and this, half snake man or whatever, these crazy paintings hanging outside the tent because they want to draw you in. And then once you get in, you're, you're, you may be disappointed because it's just a man in a dress with a beard. Right. But it's like, oh shit, but it's too late. 
And so like, I think that's the whole trick. We see that a lot in Hollywood. It's as old as that as right. in terms of what the function of the trailer is. And so I think what happened was they realized how expensive CGI was and they said, okay, let's not worry so much about everything else and put all the money into the effects because that's what's going to make people buy the ticket. That's my theory. Uh, that, that, that's the only thing I can think as to why everything got so shit after Jurassic Park. Right, 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 right. Yeah. Um, but the thing I think also it's that that was there was there was something else. Like for example, it visual effects can be amazing, is amazing, and usually it's it's invisible, and that's when it's the most amazing, right? Yeah. When we do our job really well, no one knows we did it, <laughs> mm-hmm. right? And I think that there is. I remember going to the Bake Offs when. Um, what was it? Uh, uh, Fury Road was 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 presenting, and they kind of told us we're not allowed to publicly talk about how much was done in CG because they wanted to pretend that it was all in camera, <laughs> and they did a lot in camera, but they did a lot in CG. And what was even more amazing is that it you couldn't tell which part was which. <laughs> Same with Jurassic Park, you couldn't tell. It's very hard for the viewer to say, okay, that's a CGI dinosaur. That's a mechanical dinosaur. Mm-hmm. They were so seamless in terms of, at, you know, at least at the time, which one was which. And I think that's what was so good about it. Um, so it's the, it's the villainization of, the, of, of CG that, that, that really kind of got disappointing in some ways. Yeah, I think there was a backlash for sure where, for a while that's like, well, they're not using CG. They're actually building you know, these things and shooting them in camera. And, uh, and I think that's kind of what that's also, you know, possibly what's happening with the, uh, the dome screen that they're using in like Mandalorian and stuff where it's like, Oh, oh the led screens. Yeah. The led screens is like a return to, you can't fix it in post world, you know, right. where it's like, although they still can but it's like, right. but it, but it is returning. It's, it's bringing things back to a time where like, you better have your shit together visually when you step onto that. Onto that so stage. I have a couple thoughts about that. Cause I actually do think that led walls have their goods and their bad parts uh, about mm-hmm. it. But uh, I think that they're very powerful. One of the things, and here's another theory I have is I think directors, especially those who are not familiar with CG really had a hard time with stuff because they shot especially big visual effects movies they were shooting everything against big blue screens or big green screens and then they would have to just imagine what was behind them and they would wait six months to a year before they saw anything (laughs) right and i think i think that was frustrating to them Mm -hmm. and then if you put an led wall behind them it's like well at least i can see what's going on (laughs) right well part yeah and part of the reason is because the the budget for pre-production basically got was being cut constantly right more and more every year you know until like there was no time to pre-visualize there was because you weren't given the time they want you to get on the stage and start start shooting and making the movie and that was that was probably another thing that was happening too was that they couldn't have pre-visualized if they wanted to they weren't given that 
And so they were stuck in this place of having to just go, I guess we'll figure it out later. Hopefully it'll work. And, um, and it works. I think it works for the studios because in a way it's kind of like doesn't necessarily come out of their pocket so much as it does the visual effects companies that they hire. So, yeah, yeah, I think, I think you're right. But, um, but let's, I think let's, let's go back a little bit in history and, and obviously, you know, this, this, this all, a lot of this started with, with, with Jurassic Park, actually before Jurassic Park, but Jurassic Park was the thing that really got people's attention in terms of this, uh, this, um, obviously, uh, one of the, you know, Spaz, uh, uh, or Steve Williams, but we all call him Spaz, uh, was involved, uh, in that, uh, um, and was a very important part of that, that process, um, and um, his work uh, is not necessarily recognized at large by uh, the industry, uh, but he is an important part of it. So uh, what, you know, as you've been doing, you've been documenting these important parts of computer graphics and p- stories that need to be told. What motivated you to do the story, his story? Well, <clears throat> when, I, when I started at ILM and, you know, in 94 as an intern. And I, and I remember the first time I saw him or he, I, you know, and people were like, Oh God, Spaz is going to be in this meeting. You know, it's like wherever he went was just a, was just sort of a, a, a you know, kind of, um, it, it, it became like a, a, a moment, you know, whenever he came in the room. And so, and I, I remember just being shocked at, um, how, what his reputation that preceded him was the genius, right? The computer genius. And, right. Uh, and at that time, not, not a lot of people understood anything about computers. I didn't for sure. And so like, he's kind of this genius magician that as you know, a lot of people at that, at that time were, um, were in awe of a lot. And so him and Mark DePay and a few others. And so, um, but then when I saw this guy, I was like, hey, you're not allowed to look like that and dress like that if you're a smart person. You know, like it was or a computer nerd. <laughs> or a computer nerd. It was like it was just he was such a walking contradiction. And so I immediately was like, this guy is like so interesting because of that irony and that contradiction of all the things that he is. Right. So, but then, but then what really struck me was all the, 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 uh, insider information I started to hear from all the people I worked with about how the digital sort of, um, revolution, you could call it, or just the digital, uh, wave hit ILM via these certain individuals that were hired to start with small projects. And how it grew, and um, and so that's when I first started to understand that there's there's a public. I was like 24 years old, so I was just learning all this shit. But sure. it's like this idea that there's a public face, and then there's the private face of every corporation. And right. so there's there's what the, what they want the public to believe, and then there's the inside story that they'd really rather people not know some some parts of that story. Why do you think that is? Why do you think that they want to? hide part of the story? Um, 
most of the time at most companies I've worked for, uh, it's about not looking like you don't know what you're doing. And so if there's anything that seems like uh, there was um, luck involved or, um, or, or, or literally like the way you had always done things and the way that the, the um, authority figures had decreed these, this is the way things should be done when that was literally turned on its head by people who were no names, that was another problem. And so it's just, it's all about like maintaining power and control. And so, and that's what any company should do is try and maintain as much power and control of the narrative that they're going to create for the public. Right. And so it's, it's how that, that narrative serves the, co the corporation and more essentially how that narrative serves their relationships with clients, especially when you're talking about a service industry like visual effects. And so you need to create a story around your production company or your effects company that will make um, the people with the big bucks want to work with you. And so I think that you don't want stories out there that suggest that the people who are in charge maybe were mistaken or the people who are in charge were lucky or right. the people that... Um, they're not paying much money at all are actually the brilliant people. Right. You don't want those stories out there. So that's why I think we have the, we all, we're always going to have two stories. Do you, so, think, do you yeah. think that they also just didn't know how to talk about it? And since, or the people that needed to say something didn't really know what to say. So then they just pretended that it wasn't there. <laughs> um, <clears throat> do you mean like, like, it's like, I don't know, like some, some front facing person at ILM doesn't necessarily know how the water weenie was done in abyss. Oh, right? right. And so yeah. like, I'm not going to, just not going to talk about it. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. Well, they, you know, and they, you know, that the, one of the, one of my favorite interviews was with Jody Duncan of Cinefax. Uh -huh. And she, she had this great moment where she was talking about how uh, difficult it was for her after, after decades of reporting and writing for uh, miniature effects and in-camera effects and, uh, um, you know, all the things that she knew and was able to ask questions about, she, she was suddenly confronted with um, uh, an, a sort of like language barrier where she, she really didn't even know how to ask questions and nobody did. Uh, it was, so that's why I say like, when I think about that time, it was so much like magic. It's unbelievable because people didn't have any clue, like nuts and bolts, how this was done. Right. And so they had, you know, everyone had to learn. And, um, and so, so I guess, I guess when you think about, I'm getting a call from time magazine or newsweek or whatever, I'm in the PR department. I don't want to speak for, for people who do that job, but right. I'm imagining that it's like, they want to do a story about how the effects were done. It's like, it's, it's almost, it, it's almost like you, 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 you have to, you, you have to try and frame it in a way where, um, where it's going to stay, it's going to stay sexy somehow when, when they talk to this person and it's not going to get too mired in the, the, uh, 
the process. Right. Uh, and so, so what I also saw, I guess, around that time was a lot of like attention at, uh, uh, on Stan Winston's work, say for Jurassic or this like story of like, there's always like the, the stage element and then there's the computer graphics element and how those two worlds come together at that time. And, that, so and stop that motion was, too would tip it, right? Yeah. And so that was, that was a big part of that time was them wanting to, because it's more cinematic to go film at Stan Winston's shop. It is, it is static to go film a guy sitting at a computer. And so, and you know, John Van Vliet made one of the best cartoons ever at that time, which was a picture of one guy sitting at a computer and then another guy standing over his shoulder pointing at the screen right. with a bubble around their face saying, insert visual effects supervisor here, insert computer graphics artist here. Right. And that was, the, that was the photo that was used all over yep. every publication you ever read in the 90s. Right. So, yeah, so it was, a, it was a really hard time back then to sort of, you know, in a way, make this stuff palatable for uh, the common man. Or yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, I think you're absolutely right. Absolutely right. So uh, just, just to give people, you know, let's, I know we're kind of jumping all over the place, but that's, mm -hmm. that's my style, man. Mm -hmm. uh, 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 let's, let's give people a quick, you know, just give people your summary uh, of, of, of uh, uh, Jurassic Punk, I guess it's the name was originally called Spaz, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, okay, yeah. So we we originally, I originally titled it Spaz because it just felt perfect. Yeah. Um, but then you know we we definitely got a lot of uh, pushback on that title because of what we all know about it being an ableist slur now. Right. And so it it uh, it made total sense to me to change the title, and I'm glad we did um to Jurassic Punk because that also tells the story pretty well yeah. in, in a couple of words. And um and you know luckily everything worked out in terms of clearances with that title and uh even using the Jurassic font uh was was okay. I cleared it with my attorneys and stuff. Sure. So so it was like it was a scary thing to do to change the title. It also made me think how are people going to find the film when they think it's called Spaz and all that. But it's it's easy for people to make the connection with like, say the poster image and stuff like that. Sure. But, but in terms of a, in terms of like, just to, to say what the film is, it's, it, it is something that I always wanted to do ever since 1994 when I met Steve and I learned all these stories, I all, I always envisioned like someday a documentary should be made about this guy and a documentary should be made about the conflicts, the interpersonal conflicts that occurred during this time, this incredibly change, you know, watershed moment in right. Hollywood. And, um, and it was something that I just never saw. I never saw that about my people, about my visual effects people, you know, it was all, it's always process oriented, uh, documentaries. How did they do it? Well, they did this and then they did this and then they got dinosaurs. Oh my gosh, that's amazing. End of story. And yeah. it, but none of it was about like what was that like for the people to see these first tests and what was it? It was it was just the closest it came was this Phil Tippett drama of like Phil, you know, being told we're not going to use stop motion, right? Going all computer graphics like that's that was a wonderful dramatic story that they they installed in all the Jurassic Park um, lore and and making of 
stuff. But it was, but it was, that is extremely ironic that they did that because if you watch your documentary, you realized how that was not what they wanted to do. Like they really didn't want to do it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that, I think that, um, I think that the part of the story that maybe, well, I mean, that's the thing again, it's like the part of the story that maybe doesn't want to be told so much is the, the sort of, um, I want to say grassroots push to, from the bottom up to make it was rebellious. It was yeah, very rebellious. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so, and so it's like, I think that that's the kind of story that appeals to me, this underdog tale or whatever. Yeah. And I think that, I think that Phil's story was great. And I think that, but Phil's story had like kind of a happy ending because he ended up being the supervisor. Yeah. And, and so, and it, and it, so it had this nice, like, oh my God, everything's fucked. And then it turns out it's not fucked. Everything's right. going to be fucked for Phil. So, which is, which is a wonderful story. And in fact, I will, I will tell you when I first set out to make this film, I, I was just like, I want to tell the story of this insane five-year period from 88 to 93 right. and, and everything that happened and all the people that happened. And I wanted to make an ensemble cast and just wanted to tell this crazy story. Right. Um, and then I started to realize, no, I really need a central character. I really need someone to focus on. And and I and, and for a for a brief period I wanted it to be Phil. I wanted to tell Interesting. The story of Phil's arc. And and it was and, it, and that was what I wanted to do. But it ended up being like <clears throat> much more difficult, maybe I think because Phil has a lot of experience in being interviewed and talking to people and knowing what happens when you say this or that on camera. And so he's not gonna be as open about his feelings. At least that was the sense I got when I was interviewing him. Right. Uh, Cause he's, he's smart about this stuff. And, and, and I'm not saying that Spaz is not smart about this stuff, but he's, but he is, he doesn't he hold back. Doesn't give a fuck. And he, yeah. and he wants, and he's not afraid. And, and the, his, the, the sort of like, what I want to say is like the courage he has is the, is the whole point of the film is like, is like, we're never going to know these stories unless you have someone like Steve who has the courage to tell it like he saw it. And right. so, so that was when I started to realize like, this is a, this is a film that is, that, that is mo- going to be much more powerful because you have this central figure who is, um, who is uh, letting, telling it like it is and letting the chips fall where they may. Sure. And, and I think like, and again, it's all from, from his perspective. And so, He's, he, you know, he, he, this is his story. And so it's, so to me, it's like, it's, it's again, like sort of like life, life after pie is like giving a voice that's willing to um, let it rip, you know, and that's, and that's what was happening during life, like when I was making life after pie and that's what was happening with him. And I started to realize this is probably the better movie is a movie about just him and, and what he experienced. And then let all the other voices talk as well about the same stuff he's talking about. Right. And, and let's see what happens. And then that's what got me here. So, yeah. Yeah. It's an, it's an uh, amazing story about him. I've known him for, for many years. Uh, you know, uh, not, I mean, I, we met several little times during his life and we, but we've always connected and, and it was, he's just a, a very, very interesting person and really uh, 
you know, the story is about, I mean, he got kicked out of ILM twice, right? <laughs> or suspended. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's like, and it's, yeah, that's the trash the place. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's the only thing they could do back then was, was, I think that's the funny, I think one of the funniest stories in the movie is the story of banned from being banned from the ranch. Is that now, is that, I was going to ask you, is that where that term coming from? Is it from that event that happened at the yeah. ranch? Yes. Yeah. So yeah. it's, I mean, as far as I know, that's, Spaz and Mark really were like the guys who came up, who did the action that coined that phrase banned yeah. from the ranch. <laughs> yeah. And is that, are you, are you saying that that phrase is now a uh, sort of something that people use to talk about being, getting in trouble with authority? I, no, they do. They no, yeah. but they, there was a company called banned from the ranch. Oh, well, yes, for sure. Yeah. Casey <laughs> Cannon and Van Ling. Yeah. They, yeah. yeah. They, they formed a company called Band for the Ranch because they were they were kind of one of the first like people to say like let's make our own company and so like the idea of yeah like being like ousted from the bigger you know, right. became this again this underdog you know glory story or whatever but right um, but no it's that to me like one of the fascinating things about the Band for the Ranch story is that even though both Mark and Steve probably did something that should have got them fired they really couldn't fire them because they were in the middle of making Terminator 2 at that time. And <laughs> it was that if they would have been fired there, there, and, and this is the other thing that's like, people don't understand is like, there was literally like a handful of people on the planet who knew how to do what they were doing at that time. Right. So, so it, it, it's not like people could be replaced back then in right. like 1990. Uh, there was too few people. So, so they were, in a funny way, they were slightly untouchable at that time. And, uh, and it wasn't, and it really wasn't until like more and more people in the schools, you know, started turning into schools of computer graphics and stuff that the workforce started to grow. And now people could be replaced pretty easily. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, there is, even when I was starting in very, you know, very early 2000, there, there was no school for this stuff. No one had a degree in it. Everyone had some other degree or, mm -hmm. or, or, no, or no degree. <laughs> they just were good at that stuff, right? Yeah. So yeah. that was kind of the interesting thing. But uh, there is something about that, 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 that personality that he has that is, uh, uh, can be very off-putting and very interesting at the same time. And I think that that's something that uh, I've always I've always had a, a fondness for people that are um, that could be outcasts or misunderstood. Those are like my favorite people in the world, and he is way up there, <laughs> yeah. way up there in that area. And but yeah. he he really really did some important things that I think people don't realize, you know, he was definitely put in front of camera. Like I've seen, you know, he was on TV shows and say, you created the dinosaur, the CG dinosaurs. This is all new. So there was some excitement about that. And he was on camera, which was hilarious to see him mm -hmm. in some big TV shows, which you mm -hmm. recorded very well uh, yeah. in the documentary. But, uh, but I don't think people know like that story of how grassroots level that dinosaur got to be CG. Like he, mm -hmm no one wanted it to, and they were he was yelled at you are not working on this right you're not doing this but he still well, made he, it happen <laughs> yeah and he and you know and at that by the time jurassic started to come around i think he already had a chip on his shoulder from the abyss and terminator 2 
Mm-hmm. So I think that um, I think one of the 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 big questions of the film is uh, when you when you think about like the crazy innovators that change the world with their with their work or whatever. Um, I think this ultimately sometimes I I have to you have to ask yourself can a person who has the personality to push in the way that say he pushed on people uh can can you get a true truly a watershed type style innovator and someone who can survive a corporate environment right is, is, the, is the ultimate question and i and i personally have a hard time believing that um it's possible to get a follower or someone who say uh looks at the way the world is figures out how they can fit into the world and then fits in and oppose and the opposite of that is people look at what they are and then look at the world and says the world should be what i see not what it is right and so and so i think those people who think that way ain't going to fit in to any group they're just right. going to pick people off and so like so i think like that's that's the sad irony of these stories is like is like that's um, you know nobody wants to believe that if you want to do great things it means you're going to you're not going to fit in but i think sometimes that's the way it works right so but he, I mean, the thing that's interesting, I mean, if you really think about it, he was like, he was supported by someone else who was very rebellious, right? By Scott Ross, <laughs> like Scott yeah, Ross, Scott Ross is a very rebellious character. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I know this personally <laughs> with yeah. him. Yeah. and he always wants to, you know, he, 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 he operates with a chip on his shoulder too. Right. And yeah. that's his motivation. Yeah. Uh, and that's, that's, that's not a bad thing, by the way, you know? Yeah. Uh, if it wasn't for, you know, Steve having to ship on his shoulder, he would never have snuck that picture to, or that animation, that walk cycle in front of yeah. Kathleen Kennedy. Right. Yeah. And that, if that didn't happen, you and I would probably not be having this conversation today. <laughs> yeah. And I, and I hope the film tells that story that you're, you're telling right now is like, is that the idea is like, it wasn't just, there was a whole collection of people who were similarly like pushing for change and pushing for things to happen. Right. Uh, Douglas K is also somebody that appears in the movie who, mm-hmm. who, you know, he, he covered for spaz in a lot of ways so that Steve could do the things that he did on his own. Uh, you know, Doug was running that department along with George Joblove and those guys, those guys knew where they could go with this, with this new technology. And they knew that, that Steve was somebody who could do it. And I think that they, they, there was a lot of people who covered for him. And I think Scott is another one who was, who was maybe on a higher level was one who um, was not afraid of the computer technology and really wanted to embrace it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he was the one who basically told the executives like you can fire them if you want, but then you got to call, you know, James Cameron and Fox and tell them they don't have a movie. (laughs) Yeah. 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 And he was like, yeah. yeah. And that was the message. That's he was like, I'm just doing my job. I'm telling you what's going to happen. Sure. If if they get fired. So. Yeah. yeah. I I think, uh, but you know, the thing that it did happen, you know, eventually, you know, it, 
while while he created those moments, you know, Steve created those moments, him and Mark and, and the people that supported him, as we as we were mentioning, a lot of them kind of had to, you know, they they were not, they couldn't be part of that corporate machine. You know, uh, Scott started his own company, right? Because he couldn't be part of that corporate machine. Steve and, and, and Mark left, <laughs> they decided to make their own movies, right? And do their own things. Uh, so, uh, you know, that's, that's the thing that I think is interesting. They, those things don't always work out. Uh, and it was a challenge. So what, I mean, you put, you put that very, you know, you put that in, in the documentary as well. Like the challenge of how this affected his, his life, you know, let's, let's talk a little bit about that. Like what, what, what were your thoughts about that? Yeah. I mean, so the other thing I realized in the course of making the film was that I, I, it started, I think every filmmaker has this experience of realizing that a lot of what film can ultimately be about is your own stuff too. Mm -hmm. And right. so like, so like I, at the time was struggling a lot with my own career, um, arc. Right. Sure. And becoming, you know, turning 50 and, and turning and being in my forties when I was filming, you kind of have this moment of like, is that it? Is that what this is all about? Is this, this it? And and so, so. Is the, this as good thought, as it gets? <laughs> yes. The, the, the thought in my mind was, was like, was like, um, I do believe that everybody, when maybe when you look back on your life, you have a sort of roller coaster of, of a life and like you have these high points and low points and, and, but I do believe that there's a general bell curve that you can probably identify in your life. And, and everybody can look back at a time and go, that was when I was at the top of my curve. That was when I was at the top of my game. And I think that um, I think the idea of looking back and not being able to be present and not being able to say, see the future because you're too busy looking back and, and sort of uh, ruminating uh was where I was at at the time when I was filming. And it, so it would make me sad sometimes when we talk about all this stuff uh, to, and then, and then to, I'm sitting here ruminating about it as a guy who's just kind of been an art director and done some things, but then to think about him as sort of like being at this time that occurs every hundred years, maybe sure that a watershed like this happens. And to know that he was right on the front lines of that, and to look back at that, like, how do you top that when you have a lot of life still to live? Right. And I think that that, that question too, was something I wanted to explore was like, how do you let go of the past? How do you, especially when you've had some great accomplishment, how do you let it go and realize that's the past now? And there's this new thing I am or the world is, and what am I going to do with it now? And so that, that to me was, is another big theme of the film was like letting go. How do you let go? He, he was, <clears throat> he was challenged quite a bit through mm -hmm. the things he was doing, you know? Uh, and I think you're right. He was, he was a rebel who was given free range <laughs> to do anything because of how he did things, which when you have a personality as strong as he has his, he, he abused himself, right? Mm -hmm. He allowed himself to just go crazy. I am in control. I have this. No one can touch me. 
in some ways. Uh, and listen, I'm not criticizing him because I think that he, what he did is, 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 is important. But I think that when, when suddenly people start taking the reins back from him, mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. must have been a real challenge that, mm-hmm. that, you know, led to some, so like he was it, there, in, there, I'm not going to spoil the film, but the, the, the second half of the film is very challenging to see how this could affect someone. And it's an extraordinarily emotional film, uh, which is very, very important that I think needs to be explored because I almost see him as a metaphor for the industry in a lot of ways. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I mean, that's, that's what I saw too. When I, when I was putting together the film was I started to realize that like, even though his story is extreme and his story is, is, uh, one in a million, um, it, it, it has the same structure as I feel like any artist who's done something in their life with art or with in, in a creative field. Right. I feel like it's, it's, it's always the same struggle with like art and commerce. It's always going to be a, a battle. And I right. think, you know, in a funny way, I, I also hope that, um, that, People understand when watching the film that even though things were difficult for him later and things were difficult for him even while he was there, um, that it's that it's that antagonism of both sides antagonizing each other that actually makes great things. And so I think we're living in a world today where people are really afraid to antagonize other people. And. But I, but I do believe that, um, that that's where great things happen, especially in art. And so I think that in a funny way, he, he represents maybe, uh, a nineties, uh, uh, punk hero in that at that time, that was money in the bank for people to have, if they saw somebody with an attitude like his and a fuck you way, that was, that meant money to a lot of people who were looking to cash in on creative work. And so, and that changed in the two thousands and later where it was like, nobody gets to say, fuck you anymore. Like that's just not allowed. You'll be replaced. There's too much art. now. We can pick somebody else and make them a star, you know? So it's like, so it's, it it, it just, it was, it's funny. The film really is something I I think I want people to remember when they're watching is that this was a, this was a, a, this was the nineties when it was like, when it was all about saying fuck you to the man and all about saying like, I'm not going to do what you tell me type of thing. And so, so in a funny way, like he was in the perfect time to, to in a way sort of be for people to look the other way when he misbehaved or didn't do things or say things the right way. Um, because everybody was like, he's making us rich. Holy shit. He's going to make us all rich or, you know, who knows? Right. But, but it's like, but that's the, that's kind of the, that's kind of the way, the way it was back then. It's not that way anymore, but I, but there is something. I think there's I, still pockets of that, Scott. Hold on a second. Because oh, yeah? Tim, Tim, no. Tim Miller mm-hmm. has done that. <laughs> Tim Miller okay. did that twice, right? He was the one who went to, and it, yes, he had a lot of trouble trying to get that message across and took him years and years and years. 
but he basically told the studios, yes, you can make an R-rated superhero film, right? Awesome. With Deadpool. And it took him 10 years to make that happen. Yeah. And it took him cool. even longer to say, yes, you can have animation that is not for kids and yeah. to make Love, Death and Robots, right? And it, But it took, again, a long time for it to happen. But uh, and the same thing with Alberto Miago as well, right? He he got mm. he got fired from the Spider Man <laughs> team, mm. right? And he's like, "Screw you! I won an Oscar." <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean? But Alberto is a perfect example. Like they yeah. took what he did and yeah. ran with it, and then let him go. Yeah, like, that's a perfect example. So yeah, you're absolutely right. There are little little stories here and there that. Um, you know, I think I think the Arcane animated series is another one that's kind of yeah. impressive. And that, that there's a game company where people were like, "We're going to do it different." You know, yeah. like, we'll do things differently, and look what happened. They won. They swept the Annies. You know, like, <laughs> yeah. So, so yeah, I do agree. I think that there is there is maybe more, and maybe in a way, I hope that uh, this documentary coming out now just ignites more of that, and more of these people are talked about. They are currently sort of like um, pushing the envelope. Yeah, I, that's you're, you're you're leading me right where I wanted to go, which is perfect. <laughs> okay, so uh, I mean, I know I know you you've you've uh, uh, you listen to uh, this podcast, but you also listen to my Martini Giant podcast, and uh, you know that uh, that uh, 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 Daniel Thron and Eric Chile and I talk about what happened in the 1960s and 70s and how the studios like almost went bankrupt until they just gave some money to like these guys and they made Easy Rider and they're like, holy crap, and the entire film industry changed because of that, right? And I think to me, it wasn't until I've, Till I've been obsessively talking about that and then I watched, you know, your uh, 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 Jurassic Park and I was like, oh shit, that's exactly what Spaz did. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? He did exactly, he created this revolution that created all of these films, et cetera. Mm -hmm. uh, but what's interesting now is that we're stuck in that rut, right? We're like, mm -hmm. we don't know how to get out of the superhero films and Star Wars sequels, right? We're 40 years and we're still making Star Wars stuff, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think that this documentary sort of illustrates, I'm not necessarily saying, oh, we should go back to doing what Jurassic Park did but we need to go back to that rebel <laughs> we need to find that new rebel right that and who's going to flip the switch and create something different create something unusual and actually incentivize the industry to not play it safe anymore <laughs> yeah right? i think yeah i mean I, I i hate to say it but um i think a lot of the responsibility for changing the industry falls on the customer uh, and the people buying the tickets and what, and viewing this stuff. Right. And so, so I think like what I feel guilty about is I will always see, say a new Batman movie, even though I'm disappointed every time I'll watch the next one. I'll always watch the Marvel movies, even though I'm disappointed every time I'll watch the next one. Um, that, that to me is like part of the problem is that, is that as long as people keep paying to view this, the stuff that is the problem, they're going to keep making it. Right. Now, now I'll, I'll say that, but then I'll also say this. When you have one restaurant in town or two, and then you go into that restaurant and there's three things on the menu, you don't have much choice. And right. so like, that's the other part of the problem is that in terms of just the, 
the limited choices of what we're going to watch tonight. And in terms of um, when it comes to say uh, uh, stuff that is maybe not has low nutritional value versus versus right. stuff that is probably good for you and makes your brain work. Right. There's it's harder to find that stuff. I think, you know, a 24 is a good example of a studio, a film company that's like really trying to make smart stuff, but with a nice coating of sugar on it, you know, right. to make it go down easy. Um, but, uh, I just think that that, that is, that is one of the, one of the things that is, is important is like, a is like, if you don't like this stuff, you have to stop watching it. If you, if you're mad about the Marvel movies, stop watching them. If you keep watching bad star Wars shows, they're going to keep making them. Right. And so, if, so that's the one thing in terms of people arming themselves, the public arming themselves is like, it's your, it's about your purchases. It's about what you're viewing. And if you but want to also, keep, I'm sorry, also, but if you like Marvel films, keep watching. <laughs> yeah. And, and then there's those, and then there's people like that as well. But I think what's, I think what's funny about like, in particular, people like me, it's yeah. like, it's like, I have so much of a, of a adoration for effects work and so yeah. much of a, of a love for the craft that I, I am drawn to those movies to watch what they pulled off. There's usually one scene or one thing that blows my mind. I'm just like, Holy shit, they fucking did it. Like that <laughs> yeah. blows. I can't believe how seamless that is and what they tried to do and they pulled it off. I think Ex Machina is a great example of something that uh I'm so glad they won the Oscar. It's like that that film is like the perfect example of films that should be held up and awarded and right. said, This is how you use this medium. Yeah. Right. Right. But it's interesting because I do remember when Ex Machina when there was a lot of people in visual effects who were very upset because they were like, but we did so much more. <laughs> but it's yeah. not about how much, how many explosions you had. It's sure. about a, it's about an actual craft that looks and changes the way. And it served the story so well. <laughs> yeah, I get, I get that though. It's like in terms of a challenge, it's like, yeah, I get that. I think, I think maybe it's just, it's funny when when things get awarded and given awards and stuff. It's sometimes it is motivated where where people are like, we need more of this stuff, so we have to award it. We we need more of these kinds of films, so we have to acknowledge them. Right. And and I think that that's that's maybe maybe the good thing about things like Ex Machina taking it one of the years, you know, where a film like that takes the Oscar is because right. it helps keep that part of the industry, you know, active. For sure. For sure. Okay. So listen, I want people to see, to see uh, Jurassic Park, uh, Jurassic Punk. Mm -hmm. uh, I think uh, it's an important movie. I am going to your screening in Newport Beach, which by the time this uh, podcast comes out, it will mm -hmm. already happen. But there's going to be screenings that are happening all over the place, right? Where can people find these screenings? And then when will it be available at large? <laughs> so we're going to make, we're going to be making a big announcement next week of the actual distribution release date. Okay. Which be, will be, which by the way, next week, this podcast will come out after that. So you can, okay. if you would like to talk about it now, this will be after. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's, it's going to be released by Gravitas Ventures. Oh, nice. Uh, on December 16th. And it is going to be, have a theatrical release in, in, uh, in theaters that they haven't decided yet, but in three different cities. Uh, so it is, it is going to have a big release. So nice. pretty, pretty excited about it. Um, yeah. Newport beach is, is this coming Saturday. Yeah. 
um, the new Port Theater in Corona del Mar. Yeah, uh, it's the fifteenth, and it's at one forty-five p.m. Yep. Um, so yeah, I'm hoping hoping people maybe in Southern California and LA, you know, the LA uh, affects people can come out to the Newport Beach Film Festival and see it. I think a lot of the cast is going to be there. We're doing a Q and A after. That's amazing. Very excited about it. I know I'm going, and I already I'm carpooling with a few other people, so it's going to be be fun. I may actually go early in the morning go fishing in the morning in Newport beach and then go to the screen. <laughs> awesome. That sounds like a great day. It's going to be an amazing day. Yeah. I, uh, uh, I'm really glad you're able to, sorry that, uh, that Steve wasn't able to join us, but that's okay. Cause you know, mm-hmm. I also have a feeling I was very excited to have him on, but also I was like, I don't think Scott's going to have a chance to tell a story if Steve is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, he, he's good. He's actually, re- we're really when we did South by Southwest, we actually had a lot of fun doing press together. And he's, right. he, we're really good. We're really good at like handing off, like, like now you talk, now you talk. Oh, anyway, good. Yeah. Our friendship is like really helpful in situations. like Just this. how, how long did it take you to, because you brought, this was over several years and you filmed him over several, you know, how long were you filming this? Yeah. So I started filming in like 2015, 2016. Oh my gosh. So it, it was, you know, and those were my first, that was when I bought the camera. I was like, I want to do this. And I bought the camera and started filming people. Um, but then like, but then over the next, you know, five years, you know, I just want to say when, when filmmakers say they, it took them five years to make a movie, chances are one of those years they didn't do shit. Right. Yeah. Because, because you just over five years. Things yeah, made, because, yeah. Because like trying to make a film while you're, while you have a full-time job is absolutely insane. And you know, your nights and weekends are gone, you know? Um, and so, so you, at some point you're just like, I'm insane. I'm not going to make this movie anymore. And you stop. And that's what I did. And then you realize, ah, fuck, I should make it. And then you start back up again. So right. So that was probably the course of it, but it's, but it definitely, it was, it was about five. It's a, it's five years in the making easily. Yeah. Right. Right. And then, but you filmed, you went to his place and you filmed him there over several years too, right? Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was, and that, you know, that was fun. Like it's always fun to go visit him and just shoot the shit and, right. and, you know, and roll, and roll while we just shoot the shit. Right. So there was a lot of just, uh, just talking about almost anything and everything. So, uh, you know, and every once in a while, there'd be this perfect little moment of like, sort of like, uh, peeling back the layers and seeing something a little more vulnerable in there and hearing something that was, that was where it's like all worth it, you know, the hours right. of filming or whatever. Yeah. I also think it's incredible that he documented so much of his own life as well, that you were able to use oh, all that footage. That's, you know, man. The best day was when I came over and this actually happened multiple times, but I'd come to visit him and there'd be a dusty old cardboard box sitting on his kitchen table. Uh And I'd be like, what's that? And he'd be like, open it. And I open it and there'd be like 15 DV tapes sitting in there of just random shit that he filmed himself of his family or his friends or whatever. And so like the, 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 the sort of archival material I was able to get from yeah. his dusty old boxes. Cause he kept everything. And at the time I think he was putting everything away because he knew that what was happening in his life and what they were doing was absolutely change, going to change everything. And so he right. wanted to keep everything. So I like, 
boxes and boxes of diagrams and sketchbooks, and all kinds of stuff from him that I'm hoping to someday release in, to the world in a, in a special way that so they can see all the in detail everything that that I was able to uh, recover from his from his attic in his basement or whatever. Um, but he he just he has he 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 definitely had tons of uh, home movies that I was able to use. And uh, and I'll just say this last thing, though, is that is that, you know, the 90s was the last gasp of the home camcorder. Yeah. And and and, and if you're going to make a documentary and you, you can see a lot of them coming out now, that era of the 90s was it in terms of like tapes, physical tapes actually still existing and being able to take them, scan them and then make a documentary because yeah. because. Right around 2003 or so, our our smartphones started to come out. 2004, I think it was. And well, the, yeah, 2007 was the iPhone. So yeah, okay, so that's later. But 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 what I noticed was that like his tapes started to go away after yeah. 2000. Like yeah. there just weren't a lot of tapes anymore. I think even the flip phones could do a little bit of yep, video. Yep. And so it, and anyway, I just think it was. It, I feel like kind of lucky about that. I picked an era. Yeah, that was like so, like filled with with real hard copies of footage, and I just don't know what it's going to be like in the future for filmmakers who want to make stuff. You know, I just, just scour people, people's Facebook feeds. <laughs> yes, yeah, or just like, but you know how it is. You know, you get a new phone, you throw the old phone away, you forget that you're throwing away all. You know, unless people are diligent about saving stuff on external hard drives, and then those external hard drives aren't destroyed or in some right. way corrupted. Like you're fucked. Like all that shit's going to be gone. Right. And so yeah. So it's it's kind of it's it's kind of a fascinating time to to make documentaries about people and, yeah. and things. Is the '90s because there's still a lot of that good stuff laying around. Yeah. Well, listen, I'm 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 super happy. You know that, that you came on to celebrate our 400th episode. You documented one of the most important times in the visual effects industry, uh, and a story that is uh, not told all the time a story that needs to be told. And I think that uh, Steve does need to have his story told, not just because it's Steve, but because people need to real, you know, realize what happened then and how it happened. Uh, it's the only way that we, the only way that we're going to improve on our histories if we learn from our past. And I think that, uh, you know, if we want to sort of create this new revolution, I want to create a new revolution in filmmaking. I think that there's ways that we can think about what films are and what films mean and how we make movies. Uh, and looking back at what happened, you know, in, in between 88 and 94 is an important part of that history that we need to learn from. So I really thank you, Scott, for documenting it, putting it out there. And I highly encourage people to go check it out when it comes out in theaters, uh, you know, in the United States, go definitely go check it out. So, so Jurassic, uh, punk is, uh, awesome. So thanks so much for doing this, man. Chris, thank you so much. I'm so glad you liked it.